Welcome to the Wide Teams Podcast, the podcast for geographically distributed teams and remote workers. Located on the web at wideteams.com and on Twitter as Wide Teams. This is episode 37. I'm your host, Avdi Grimm. My guest today is Justin Searles from Test Double, a software consultancy. Justin is joining me today from Columbus, Ohio. Justin, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Hello, Avdi. I'm really glad that you uh, invited me to join you. So, um, would it be fair to say that you've had a, uh, a checkered past with remote work? That would be fair, yes. So, uh, tell me about that. Tell me about your history with uh, working remotely. Well, I've been um, consulting for going on six years now, and it seems like I'm in this sort of healthy cadence of, of alternating between co-located teams and distributed teams. Um, and, and so I've had the chance to probably work on... Um, at least that I can readily remember anecdotes from six or seven different distributed teams at this point. And several went really well and several went really poorly. Uh, and, and hopefully uh, in reflecting on that, we can kind of draw some broader observations. All right. Well, I have to ask, can you tell me a story of, of a distributed team that went sour? Yeah, sure. Um, so I had one case where um, the, the team's composition was that there were two two large satellite offices to, to try to make this project a success. One satellite office was primarily business folk, um, like a, a product owner, a handful of business analysts, uh, a QA guy, and I think one developer who represented the sort of client. Uh, and then another satellite office was about six or seven developers, uh, and, and everyone went to their respective offices each day. And then at some point, somebody decided to add me as a totally remote, totally separate entity working from Columbus by myself and trying to interface with both parties. Um, and that went sour for a number of reasons, but I think that the, um, the, the biggest offender was that we would often have conference calls between everybody, and it was dreadfully obvious that when one party was talking, the other office would go on mute and trash talk the other party and develop this this us versus them dichotomy, right? So like a lot of times when we talk about agile software development, we we try to do everything we can to lower the barrier and, and break down the walls between the business and the developer. Um, but when there's a geographic distance and also an easy ability to um, when it's easier to communicate, you know, with your own in group um, than it is with you know these other people that you maybe don't know as well. Um, they're operating under so many communication constraints that you aren't, that it's just sort of like the path of least resistance is to communicate more readily with the people that you're already, you know, kind of closer to. Um, so, so what this team had to do to be successful uh, was, uh, and it took us several months to realize this was the problem, was to place everybody under artificial communication constraints. So instead of having um, everyone go, uh, like all the developers go and, you know, go to this crappy office building somewhere and have all of the clients uh, all kind of co-locate in a war room. We kept everyone at their desks. The developer stayed at home and, and, and the client, you know, stayed in their cubicles. And they were all forced to communicate using the same online tools, you know, whether mm-hmm. it was Skype or Campfire Chat Room or, um, uh, you know, IM or what, what have you. And by, by giving everyone the same communication constraints, 
that I, at least I felt like it was reducing the amount of kind of passive aggression and the amount of times where people were just totally cut out of the loop for the sake of convenience. So, uh, so for these, these distributed teams, you found that, that absence really doesn't make the heart grow fonder. Right. And I think that that's, the nicest way to say what happens when I, as a developer, pull down a bunch of code and start reading through it and start seeing things that I don't like. Um, if the person is physically in the room with me as I pull it down, uh, one, I have to, you know, immediately recognize that that person is still a human being because I can see them and, and you know, I can I can recognize their nonverbal communication and, and they're right there with me. But when, when somebody becomes increasingly removed, uh, I, I, I'm not forced to emote as much uh, to, to empathize with, with what their situation might be. And so um, at least I recognize in myself that as I go longer and longer without establishing a kind of healthy working relationship with the people that I'm uh, collaborating with remotely, uh, I start to sort of view their actions through a pessimistic or a cynical lens. Either either what they're doing is is malicious or not trying to help or is passive aggressive, or I view it as... Um, you know, from my perspective, that they don't approve of me or that they don't like how I'm doing things. And, and I, I recognize a, um, a rift where there might not be. It might just mm-hmm. all, be in my, all be in my head. When you feel yourself, when you recognize yourself getting into that mindset, is there anything that you do to, to try to turn the tide? Yeah. Um, uh, the first thing that I tried to do was get off the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, That's one way I, to do it. That that didn't work. My partner uh, at Test Double is named Todd Kaufman, and he was actually the executive on the on the first project I tried to do uh, pull that with. And from the from the time I requested to get yanked off, I think it was five more months that I was still in that situation. And it turned out to be a really healthy um, uh, healthy for me professionally to to have to actually sit down and think hard and deal with that. Um, there was nothing like actually investing the time and money to go travel to visit everyone in person. Uh, every time I did that, I'd get like, you know, if you imagine it as a graph, right? And you start off at some sort of middle point in terms of your affection towards everyone else. And it kind of like naturally tapers off with time. Um, every time that I physically went and visited somebody and spent a few days, even if we weren't really getting a whole lot of work done, but spent a few days face to face, um, that would spike and then it would start trailing off again. Um, that was, that was by far the biggest improvement. Um, the, the cheaper solution was I, I remember sticking a post-it note on my display uh, that just said, you know, uh, um, everyone's doing their best. Mm-hmm. And to just assume, because this is what I do and, and it's only fair to assume that everyone is, you know, working in the best interest of the team and the project and that everyone's doing their best work. And everyone's trying to do the right thing at the time. Um, it forced me into a mindset of trying to imagine what their constraints might have been um, before I jumped to conclusions. And when I couldn't imagine those, to actually, you know, that would prompt me to then communicate with them instead of just make a bunch of assumptions. Hmm. Right. To contrast, tell me a little bit about your best distributed team experience and, and what you think are the elements that m- went into making it that way. Um, yeah. So, so my current situation. Um, there's several things that market as being different from what I'd spent the last couple of years doing. Um, for the last several years, I'd been working primarily as a developer slash coach, uh, where, you know, not only was it, not only was it being brought on to, you know, uh, 
help a project succeed by writing code for it. But I would also, you know, um, be in sort of a teacher mentor role about various practices like test driven development or, or, uh, helping a kind of a, a larger organization that was used to waterfall style software development and try to help them implement, you know, an agile mindset uh, in the organization. And mm -hmm. so, Doing that remotely is not surprisingly very, very hard because whenever anyone, um, it, because whenever anything goes wrong, I'm not there to see it. So I'm not there to point it out and, and start an interesting conversation about it. Instead, all I really see are like the artifices of, uh, what shakes out from that, like how this particular meeting might have gone or how a team is doing in the aggregate or, or what things look like in the code. Um, so, so for this current engagement where I'm working remotely, um, it was, we set, we set very clear up front that there would be absolutely no kind of coaching aspect, um, that, that we would do whatever we could to kind of, you know, learn together, but there wasn't, you know, this, um, senpai sort of like, you know, senior role where, where I'd be also trying to be the bringer of knowledge and practices to everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so reducing or eliminating that as sort of, you know, something I was explicitly trying to accomplish, um, was really helpful because it let me just focus on, you know, being a productive developer, which is hard enough on a distributed team. Right. Uh, another thing that was helpful was, um, having a, and, and this, and part of the reason why the coaching wasn't really, uh, uh, part of the gig is, is that it wasn't really necessary. So I'm working on a team of people who are highly skilled software developers in the arena that we're working in the, in the particular technical stack and in the particular domain. And so my joining, um, uh, as just an additional kind of like bit of capacity, um, meant that we all had a common foundation. We were all coming from the same software development community. So, so we had sort of enough in common in terms of the memes and tropes and, and, um, social network of who knows who and stuff that we didn't really have to normalize a great deal. Right. So like the benefits of normalization where we, you know, all get together and argue about what the right way to build a project is. A lot of that wasn't very necessary. Hmm. So, so we were mostly operating from similar enough starting points that we didn't run into as many sort of frictious, uh, well, somebody looks at some pull requests and doesn't like the entire approach that I took. They might only pick a, a handful of things. And so it only took a couple months to really iron out, um, things like style and convention. And so that was really helpful too. And that is to say, just it was helpful to get everyone from the same community with a similar level of experience um, who were uh, inclined to approach problems similarly, which is a hard thing to do. I mean, it's hard to find a, a skilled software developer anywhere in the first place. But to get them all from the same community, I think, even though they were, you know, uh, distributed all across the country, uh, uh, that ended up paying dividends. And I don't think that was something I expected going in. Talk to me a little bit more about this, uh, about the idea of, of normalization. That's, that's part of, uh, the, uh, the agile principles, is it, is it not? Well, I, I think it is. Um, I think that, uh, when, when you work back to the, to the manifesto, and especially if you look at extreme programming, um, almost all of the extreme programming values are, uh, focused on improving communication. Uh, you know, increasing the amount of collaboration that we have between, uh, the customer or the business or the project owner and the developers on the team. But also within the team, uh, kind of having the whole team mindset of like, get the whole team on board with what we're going to do, have the whole team share a big backlog, have the whole team, you know, 
work together through every single one of the various checkpoints in whatever cadence the team arrives at. Um, and and I recently gave a talk uh, called the Mythical Team Month, where where I just revisit a lot of Fred Brooks's you know excellent work on um, what really boils down to to what math's called the handshake problem, right? So so where you have uh, if you only have one person, you have zero communication pathways, and if you have two people, you have two communication pathways, and if you have three, then you have three, and then it starts to go off the way uh, off the rails. Where where if you have you know four people, then you have six relationships to manage, and if you have five people, then you have um, and I don't have the math in front of me because I'm terrible at math, but you have more and more and more, and pretty soon you know if you've got a team of twenty people, you might have three hundred different relationships that you can identify that you have to manage. Right. So so normalization on agile teams, I think. Um, is really important because they only, uh, they, many of them, many of the practices and principles assume that every, everybody on the team matters as much as any other person. That means every opinion matters. And that means that everyone coalescing and, and agreeing at every single point along the way is also really important. Um, so the more people that you have in the team, the slower you're going to go because the more negotiation is necessary. I think that's just normal across all agile teams, uh, whether they're co-located or not. The problem with distributed teams is obviously communication cost is significantly higher. So, so to communicate at the same level of fidelity that we do when we're working together in person is um, just way more expensive. It, it, it takes more time, more gets lost in translation. Um, people get left out of the loop, uh, and and achieving that same level of consensus at every point is is maybe not always worth it. Mm. Um, and so, so one of the things that I found that works really, really well is even though, you know, um, Waterfall is infamous for siloing people into different roles and responsibilities or breaking up projects, um, in such a way that each kind of person is like a, a master of their little fiefdom, right? Like maybe Bob does these services and Jane does these services and they don't really like, you know, collectively own the code. Um, so we see that in the agile team as like an anti, an, an anti pattern, uh, something to be avoided. But when we are on a distributed team, for them to collectively own the code might be so expensive, so prohibitively expensive for them to get along and really share it well, that, that re-siloing them up and just dealing with whatever maintenance, um, maintenance troubles might come uh, might actually be net cheaper. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you dogmatically follow kind of like whatever agile practices have been handed to you, uh, then you might not be aware of that or, or let yourself become aware of that. And, and so for this particular engagement, another thing that was really successful about it was, especially for the first hand, first three or four months, they were very careful to give me easily carvable work that I could own by myself so I could spend all the time I needed to try to figure out how the heck to do it, how to negotiate and how to live inside of their domain and their code base. Uh, and I didn't have to worry about keeping up with anybody else uh, and, and I could make as big a mess as I wanted to because I had a kind of safe place to play. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be uh, tremendously helpful at actually doing the opposite, which is integrating you with the rest of their team because then I had to kind of you know, fly out there, present it all to them, and, and pull it back in with everything else. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that the, the, the big takeaway for me is that um, while the agile practices and values and principles are all extremely valuable, um, the, the cost of communication needs to be factored in to every practice that we adopt. Uh, and, and we, we need to consider that before we just say this is the right way to do something. Right. Right. How do you know, like, what's your warning? What are your warning signs that things are going off the rails that, you know, that, that maybe the cost of communications is, is, um, becoming too expensive? Well, 
Um, it probably depends on what type of team you're dealing with. I think that a lot of, you know, quote unquote distributed teams are really, um, really have one group of people that are all co-located in sort of some sort of headquarters and then a handful of people that have kind of been globbed on as remote workers, right? Right. And when that happens, um, you run all sorts of risks that the team that is primarily co-located will use uh, face-to-face or easier pathways of communication with each other. And just, again, path of least resistance, they'll leave the remote people out. Right. The remote people will get some sort of, you know, lower fidelity communication, like maybe an email summary at the end of the week or something about what what had been very, you know, maybe even passionately and intensely communicated when, with all the people in person. They effectively leave that person out because it would be harder to go to the conference room with the video chat camera in it. Um, and and uh, one of the so to answer your question, one of the first things that I tend to see when things start going off the rails is people reporting at kind of team checkup meetings or standups, oh, like I was left off of that, or like mm. I, um, I didn't know that we were doing that. And so when people um, uh, express that they're not aware of where everybody else is, to an, to wherever they feel like is a level that's comfortable to them, um, that probably is also an indication that they're not very comfortable where things are at. Right. So that's that's one of the first things I look for. And usually it's just me catching myself saying it. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, like, what's your next step then? Well, I think it's actually it's probably a pretty good point to catch yourself because um, they're, they're, it's also the easiest to remediate. Um, if, if people are coming to decisions and, and arriving at conclusions and not disseminating that information or not in, especially not involving you in, the, in those discussions, um, finding ways to fight for... Um, being involved in the synchronous communication, for starters, which might mean, you know, like, hey, if, when you guys sit down to talk about this, if you could go to that meeting room for me and start up a video chat, I'd really, really, really appreciate it. Um, and, and in general, I think that people, uh, especially if you make a, 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 an impassioned plea, people will generally respond pretty well. And if they form a habit, then the habit will probably stick and it'll probably work pretty well. Um, on the other hand, though, sometimes like, you know, the expectation that all synchronous communication and conversations um, have to be done in some sort of, you know, like a uh, uh, high fidelity remote way where, where maybe we're starting a conference call or we're starting a video chat, um, that would be really expensive. I think the whole team would realize that, like, wow, we're spending a lot of time in video chat mode uh, just, to, just to communicate. So I think that the other lesson learned is uh, uh, to value asynchronous communication more. So something else that I do is try to encourage people to, uh, instead of uh, have a bunch of ad hoc, um, you know, just sometimes distracting uh, decision points and conversations throughout the day, is to uh, leverage like a, a chat tool like Campfire or Basecamp or something to get it up there or use a pull request so that people can work and then and then you know comment only when they're free mm-hmm. and then we can all arrive to something you know at at fixed points so that we're not constantly interrupting ourselves throughout the day. And that's as true locally as it is uh, remotely, but I think there's the added cost of bringing somebody onto a call or having to move the conversation to a conference room uh, makes that really apparent. Are there any other bits of advice that you would, that we haven't hit on already that, that you would offer to disperse teams? Um, yeah, I think, I think that um, it's important to recognize what kind of organization you have. Right. Like it's easy to say that we have one to n people who are remote, 
um, and just leave it at that. But I th- I've seen I've seen teams kind of fall into one of three different styles. Um, in one case, you know, like the team, like we mentioned earlier, like the team is all in one place, and then a handful of remote people kind of just have to deal with that. Satellites, yeah. Satellite folk, yeah. Or you have multiple teams in multiple places where um, maybe they have different cross-functional roles. You know, maybe one's the business and one are developers. Or maybe they work on separate um, modules. Or maybe you're just trying to get these separate offices all to build one thing together, you know, in concert. Um, and third, um, you know, you might have a situation where literally no one is co-located. Everybody is completely distributed. Um, and And... In my experience, the one that works best is that third one <laughs> because it means right. that everyone's operating under the exact same communication constraints, whether they like it or not. They're not artificially placed anywhere. Um, everyone has to figure out how to communicate effectively across distance, and um, I think that we undervalue that, right? So, so, so I've worked with clients before who've kind of, you know, had this war room mentality that, um, you know, telecommunicate, telecommuting uh, uh, wasn't allowed and that everyone had to come into the war room except for these three guys for whom we, 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 we couldn't exert that control. And what they slowly came to realize was that everybody telecommuting was actually better for the team mm-hmm. than having 10 people in one room and three people outside the room. Hmm. Um, so, so recognizing what organization style you have and not prejudging uh, that yours is best <laughs> would probably be my two pieces of advice. Nice, nice. Well, that's yeah, that's really good advice. All right, well, Justin, um, where can people find you and uh, and Test Double on the web? Yeah, so so our web address, um, uh, which is a very simple website with a big contact us button and a form, is uh, www.test-double.com, and uh, you can always find me on Twitter. My my Twitter handle is Searles, S E A R L S. And right now, uh, I wanted to, if you don't mind me plugging, um, absolutely. Uh, Chris Nelson from Gaslight Software and I are are preparing to do a three-day uh, uh, JavaScript workshop that's going to cover Jasmine uh, for, for for testing CoffeeScript uh, and Backbone.js, um, and that's going to be held in Chicago on June 27th to 29th. And uh, Groupon has uh, graciously afforded us their large training room for it. Uh, if, you, if you're interested, and, and I'd encourage you to go, uh, our web address for the training is training.gaslightsoftware.com. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, Justin, thanks again for joining me. Th- and thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. And that is our show today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Wide Teams podcast. For more interviews and articles on dispersed teams and remote work, Please visit us on the web at wideteams.com. If you enjoy the show and you're an iTunes user, please do rate the show in the iTunes Music Store. I'd really appreciate that. The Wide Teams podcast is is distributed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. Our music is by Giles Boquette. Until next week, this is Avdi Grimm signing off. Wild, 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 wild,